0: Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Laymiller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire, and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with journalist Michael Castleman, who has covered sex research and therapy extensively in his 46-year writing career. He has written more than 2,000 magazine and web articles, answered more than 12,000 sex questions and published 17 books, which together have sold more than 2 million copies. Today we're going to be talking about his latest book titled Sizzling Sex for Life, Everything You Need to Know to Maximize Erotic Pleasure at Any Age. We will be covering a lot of ground today, including general tips on how to level up your sex life, what people of different ages need to know in order to maximize sexual pleasure, and how to resolve common sexual difficulties. We'll also be answering some of the most common questions we get about sex. This is going to be a really fun and interesting conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Michael, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology podcast.
1: Hi, Justin. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: I am pleased to have you here to talk about all things sex, I've been reading your blog on psychology today for a number of years and have been an admirer of your work because you provide sex advice that is evidence-based. There are a lot of people out there who are answering sex questions who I think are great and very well-intentioned people, but they're often giving answers based on their personal opinions and experiences. And there's certainly some value to that. But there's also some potential risk, because if we know anything about sex, it's that one person's experiences might not be representative. So generalizing broadly from an anecdotal report can sometimes result in people getting information that isn't very well suited to their own circumstances. So I appreciate your sticking to the science and research in the work that you do. But to kick off our conversation, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional journey? I know you've been a journalist for quite some time, but how did you get into the business of writing about sex specifically?
1: I was coaxed into writing about sex (laughs) against my will. I was writing for an underground newspaper in Michigan in the early 1970s. I've written about health defined broadly for my entire career. And the editor of that newspaper said, Mike, we got Valentine's Day. We need a story about sex. I want you to write a story called How to Make Love. And I said, no, I refused. And he said, what? I said, look, I'm 23 years old. What do I know? And he said, well, you live with your girlfriend, don't you? I said, yeah, but I'm like everybody else. I don't know much about sex. I just do it. He sputtered, and I refused, and we left on awkward terms, and I walked home, and my house is about a 15-minute walk away. When I got home, my girlfriend, Ann, who's now my wife, we've been together 50-odd years, she said to me, Mike, you got to write this story about how to make love. Come on. So uh, what happened was the editor knew Ann socially and called her up and, and begged her to coax me into doing it. And so I said, okay, okay, I'll do it. And fortunately for me, the Masters and Johnson books, Human Sexual Response and Human Sexual Inadequacy, in the early 1970s had just come out in paperback. And I read them, and there was a sexuality program at the University of Michigan that was near where I lived. And so I started reading about sex and researching it. And I was fascinated. I mean, just not only because, uh, you know, that sex is inherently fascinating. But in the course of writing that article, I learned that Masters and Johnson had come up with a way to teach men ejaculatory control. And at the time, at age 23, I had premature ejaculation, as many, many men do. It's men's number one sex problem. And I said to Ann, all right, listen, you... You coaxed me into writing this article. Now I, I need your help. Will you work with me on this program so I can learn ejaculatory control? So she said, "Yeah, sure." And uh, we did the program, and in one month, I had bomb-proof control. It was astonishing. I, I couldn't believe it. I was—I was, I was suddenly—I was cured. And I said to myself, "I can't be the only one." I mean, men should know about this. And so that was the start of my sex writing career and I've been writing about it ever since.
0: So you were a reluctant sex writer, but diving into the research and applying it in your own life showed how you could improve and and enhance your own sexual functioning. And I think that's a really great story and and a great example of the way that just better understanding the science of sex can help us to improve our own Intimate lives, but so many of us don't have access to that information. It's not taught in our sex education courses. And that's why it's so important that we have journalists and writers who are out there covering this and taking the science to the public and giving them the sex education they're not getting anywhere else.
1: Yes. And I also think it was an object lesson for me in the effectiveness of self help approaches. There's a lot of controversy in the sex field about self help resources because some of them aren't very good and because a lot of sex therapists have a vested interest in people coming to them. But you know in the United States there are only about 3,000 sex therapists in a nation of 300 odd million. So a lot of sexual difficulties will never get to a sex therapist and people are essentially thrown back on self-help resources and they don't always work but the research on self-help sex issues is that self-help resources work in about two thirds of cases. And I was one of them. And that's what I write is self-help sex material.
0: Yeah. And the self-help route, can work when it's based in evidence and science and you know not all self-help manuals are created equal when it comes to sex or anything else in life and so it's important that if you're going to go the self-help route to do your research and to make sure that you're finding books and resources that are written by experts that are based in scientific research and evidence but what you say is so true that there are very few sex therapists for a large population that has a lot of sexual health issues and difficulties. And so that makes self-help one of the primary go-to routes for people's sexual problems.
1: Yeah, the research on self-help is that self-help helps about two-thirds of people. The one-third who don't get benefit from evidence-based scientific self-help resources They go to sex therapists, and sex therapists help about two-thirds of them. And so that leaves about 10% of people's sex problems resistant to treatment, usually because of chronic medical or psychological issues. But most people, the good news about sex problems is that the vast majority of them get better.
0: Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Sex problems are usually fixable. And something I've, I've mentioned before on the podcast that a lot of people are surprised by is that so many sexual problems and difficulties can be solved simply through sex education. And so much of sex therapy is just giving people the education that they never got anywhere else. And so, since we're on that subject of sex ed, let's talk about your latest book called Sizzling Sex for Life. One of the things that I really like about this book is that it takes a lifespan approach to sexuality and it emphasizes this idea that there's no definitive endpoint to our sex lives, but there are different things we need to know depending on our current life stage. But this is a topic that is totally neglected in sex education. You know, most sex education that people get, at least in the United States, focuses on avoiding STIs and unwanted pregnancy. And it doesn't really venture into pleasure. It doesn't venture at all into how your body changes over your life and how sex changes and how to make it pleasurable and exciting and keep it pleasurable and exciting. So let's break down what people need to know right now, depending on where they are, and then also what they need to know to prepare for the future. So we're going to divide this into three sections and talk about young adults, midlife, and seniors, and some of the key issues that come up at these different life stages. So let's start with the young adults, you know, people who You know, might be in their late teens through their 30s or so. I know that's a wide age range, covers a lot. But if we went decade by decade, we'd be here for quite a while. So what are some of the unique issues or challenges that younger adults might face when it comes to sex? And what are some of the keys to good sex at this stage of life?
1: Well, the first thing young adults have to understand is that everyone is sexually unique. Our sexuality is as individual as our fingerprints and DNA. And so you can read all kinds of stuff in the media about how men are this way, women are that way, men are from Mars, women Venus, all these generalizations that work their way into the news media and into people's minds. And it's what your friends will tell you. The fact is everyone is sexually unique, which means that you don't know what a lover wants and they don't know what you want unless you tell them. And for young adults, this is a very important and, frankly, difficult lesson because it forces people to discuss sex, which most people don't want to talk about. So I would say that's very important for young adults. The second thing that's super important, probably the the next most important thing, is that young men need to know that the vast majority of young women do not have orgasms during intercourse, no matter how large their erections are or how long they last uh, in bed or in intercourse. Men are seriously misled by their friends and the news media and pornography and movies to believe that intercourse is what turns women on. It's, men have orgasms in about 95% of intercourse episodes. But depending on the study, among women, that figures only 50 to 70%. When men need to appreciate the clitoris and its, uh, its wonders and beauty and understand that what hangs between their legs is usually a lot less important than what comes out from between their lips. Use your tongue, not your dick, and you'll be happier and so will your lovers. And it's very important to young men to satisfy young women. A lot of men of all ages view sexually satisfying their women lovers as a key part of their sexual self-esteem. And if you want that, then men of all ages need to appreciate the uh, splendor of the clitoris.
0: And I think that's all great advice, you know, the importance of sexual communication and Sex education and that role of the clitoris in female sexual pleasure. There's a previous episode of the podcast for those of you listening, which you should check out after this show, where I interviewed Dr. Lori Mintz about her recent book, Becoming Clitorate, which tells you everything you need to know on that subject. And it's a great guide to sexual pleasure in women. So it's a great book for anyone who is a woman or who loves and is sexually interested in women. One other thing I wanted to add to that is that something I've seen in my own work and also through the questions I get is that a lot of younger adults have a lot of anxieties and insecurities that they're bringing into the bedroom, right, where they're concerned about Genital appearance, their overall body appearance. And there's this certain level of stress and anxiety that they're bringing in that often interferes with sexual pleasure. And once people get a little bit older, we find that they often develop a certain amount of sexual self confidence where they feel better about themselves. They know what turns them on and what feels good. And so it's easier for them to get what they want when it comes to sexual encounters. But this is something I find a lot of people struggling with. And so it's finding a way to manage those insecurities uh, that, that is also very crucial, I think, for, for young adults.
1: Absolutely. The, one of the biggest cause of sex problems, besides ignorance, is stress, anxiety, and worry. And so when men are worried about how long they last or will, will their penis perform properly, that causes stress, which makes them come faster and hurts their penis function. The same with women. When women are anxious about uh, how they appear in bed, how their genitals look, all that stuff, that interferes with their own orgasm process. So one of the key things about sex is that when you say sex to people of all ages, they mostly think of intercourse. Actually, lovemaking is really all about mutual whole body massage that eventually, after about 20 minutes or so, extends to the genitals. And if young lovers, and frankly, lovers of any age, get into mutual whole body massage for an extended period of time, that relieves a lot of anxiety. I mean, it's like getting a, when you get a massage, you come out and feel relaxed. Well, if you give massages to each other, you both feel relaxed. And you both will function better in bed.
0: And I think that's also advice that is supported by the pioneering work of Masters and Johnson, who did a lot of work to promote this idea of sensate focus, which is really just about partners touching each other and exploring each other's bodies. And what they found in their sex therapy research was that simply by adding more touch into couples intimate lives they could often solve a lot of their sexual problems because touch not only can promote sexual arousal and desire but it promotes relaxation it's a stress reliever it can help you to feel more bonded and connected with your partner through the release of oxytocin which happens when we have this this intimate touch occurring so I think there are lots of benefits to be had simply by increasing the amount of touch that exists in our relationships
1: Yes, absolutely, and you're right. Masters and Johnson were the ones to identify uh, touch as uh, critical to sexual functioning. My beef with them is that they named it "sensate focus" instead of "whole body massage." <laughs> sensate focus is a uh, an obscure jargon term that sex sexologists know, but you say that to the average person, they have no idea what you're talking about. And Masters and Johnson did that very much on purpose because they were terrified that they would be accused of appealing to prurian interest. And so they jargonized everything. Instead of calling it massage, they called it sensate focus. My attitude is that I never use the term sensate focus in my book, Sizzling Sex for Life. People just don't know what it means. I say Extended, gentle, playful, mutual whole body massage. That's what lovemaking is about. And and that's frankly what you know most Americans understand. When you say that to them, they go, Oh, yeah, okay, I can do that.
0: Yeah, I mean it's descriptive and accurate, and I think that's a term that I can get behind. So let's keep going through the lifespan let's move to middle age so as we get a little bit older when we're talking about being in our 40s and 50s how does sex change and what are some of the common issues that might arise and how do we resolve them
1: well one thing that changes is that men start to become more like women men slow down young men are super horny can't wait to get it on you know they walk around with hard-ons all day at least I did when I was in teen and young adult but Come middle age, men's sexual response slows down a little bit, and so men become a little more like women, and so a lot of middle-aged people find that they have much happier sex than they had a decade or two earlier, simply because they're a little bit better aligned together about what they need, more whole body massage, before they go into genital play. But beyond that, in middle age is when the downsides of sex start to turn up. Men start to get worried about their erection function. A lot of men, particularly if they're smokers or they have diabetes or chronic medical issues, they start losing their erections and they start to think, oh my God, you know, I'm at the end of my sexual rope. And middle-aged women are becoming perimenopausal. They're entering into the menopausal period of life which is not something that happens on your 50th birthday. For most women, menopausal changes start in the early to mid-40s. And that can cause uh, vaginal dryness that can make intercourse uncomfortable, sometimes even with lubricants. So the middle age, uh, just as, you know, if you play basketball, if you're a young guy and you play basketball in your 20s, and you keep playing ball into your 40s, well, the basketball you play at 45 is not quite the same as it was at 25. You may be wilier on the court, you may have better moves, but you just don't quite have the physical abilities you used to have, and you have to get used to that. Lovemaking is the same. It changes as the years pass, but if you work on it, it doesn't get worse, it can actually get better. Many, many people report the best lovemaking of their lives as they get older and away from young adulthood
0: and that is so true and i think it's such an important and reassuring message for a lot of people because so many people look back on the sex that they had in maybe their late teens and 20s and think that that was their peak and you know, they, they they think that, you know, it's all downhill after that. But the truth of the matter is that the quality of the sex that you're having can increase as you get older and sex can and does get better and if you have the right mindset that can be really important for allowing you to open yourself up to even more pleasure than you ever thought possible so (laughs) you know i get tired of hearing all these people who say that oh i I just turned 30 or i just turned 40 oh my sex life is over well you know if (laughs) if that's the way you're looking at it you're living life wrong right because your sex life should Actually, be on an upward trajectory.
1: Yes, yeah, sex isn't something that somehow God granted. Se- sexual pleasure is something that lovers create with each other, and that creative process goes on for throughout life. And the more experience people have in life, the more creative they can be. Actually, I mean, you know, they say youth is wasted on the young, and that may be true. I mean, I'm I've, I've turned seventy-one, but. As far as lovemaking is concerned, where there's a will, there's always a way. And at any age and in any state of uh, health and wellness, if you put your mind to creating good sex, you can do that.
0: So true. And I think what you said about the role of experience is really important, right? Because when you're in that midlife stage, you can take everything that you've learned, earlier on about what it is that feels good to you about how to pleasure a partner and you can approach sex in a much more confident fashion than you ever could before because when you're younger you know most of us have no idea what we're doing <laughs> and, you know we're not very good at sex but through that accumulated experience that exploration of your sexuality where you figure out what you do and don't like and all of that you can cultivate better more exciting more pleasurable experiences as a result of that so don't underestimate the value of sexual experience
1: Right. And with experience also comes assertiveness. And these studies are very clear. I think some of these were even done at uh, Indiana U, where as women get older, they generally, not everybody, but generally become more comfortable asserting what they really need in bed. And if men are open to listening to that, to what their lovers say they want, then the couple has better sex. And a lot of young women are very reluctant to say anything. You know, they think men know everything and should lead and orchestrate sex and that they are sort of just along for the ride. And it's really about men's pleasure and not theirs. By the time women are middle-aged, many, I would say most, not all, but most, have become increasingly assertive about what they need. And actually, that's good. That's good for both people.
0: Absolutely. So let's talk about older age, when we become seniors— what do we need to know about sex? How is sex different? How do you maximize pleasure? And for people who aren't currently seniors, but rather are seniors in training, as my dear friend Joan Price likes to call them, you know, we're all going to be seniors one day. So uh, if you're not currently a senior, you're a senior in training. What do the seniors in training also need to know to prepare for a great sex life later on?
1: You know, it's funny. We we tell young people, think about your financial future. Think about your career future. Think about this future. Think about that future. We never say to them, think about your sexual future. No. we We need to say that. And the thing about older sex is that until Viagra was approved in 1998, the common assumption was that sex just ended and that older people didn't have sex and that it was like all over. They retire from their job with a gold watch and they retire from lovemaking too. What Viagra showed was that older people are as sexual as anybody else, but sex changes. And for men, even with Viagra, the majority of men start to lose their erections, which makes intercourse impossible. And for older women, they suffer vaginal dryness and atrophy that makes intercourse uncomfortable, even with lubricant. And so what you have is two older people, neither of whom is particularly inclined to intercourse because either they can't have it anymore or it's uncomfortable. And so what older people do is that they just leave intercourse behind and they start having what sexologists call outer course, which is everything but. So there's kissing, cuddling, holding each other, Extended mutual whole body massage, hand jobs, oral sex, toys, and 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 a surprising number of older people start experimenting with with the elements of kink, blindfold, spanking, that kind of thing, to keep sex fresh and lively and interesting. But like I said earlier, at any age, where there's a will, there is always a way. You know, I'm I'm old. I I'm 71, and some of my friends have retired from sex. They say, "Oh, you know, we don't do that anymore." But most of my friends are figuring out a way to remain sexual with their lovers, and the surveys are very clear that if older people have partners, they almost always want to make love with them, and if they don't have partners, they continue to engage in self-sex and solo pleasure. And with the older women often using vibrators
0: yeah and what you say is backed up by the research in that for many seniors and older adults we see this shift in their definition of sex over time where it often goes from sex as intercourse to sex as intimacy and it involves taking this broader more expansive view of what sex and pleasure can be That doesn't mean that intercourse is off the table for all seniors. We know from nationally representative surveys that many do continue to engage in intercourse, but oftentimes through the aid of medications like Viagra for erectile difficulties that men might be experiencing or usage of lubricants to deal with vaginal dryness issues. But we do see this more expansive definition of sex. And for those who adopt that more expansive view, they tend to be much more sexually satisfied. The seniors who retain that very strict view of sex as intercourse tend to be less satisfied. And report more interference in their sex life of sexual difficulties. So having that expansive view of sex, I think is something that shouldn't just be limited to seniors and that we would all benefit no matter where we are in the lifespan from taking this broader view of what sex is because it provides more opportunities for pleasure especially in situations where maybe one partner isn't in the mood for intercourse, but they're open to something else, right? So rather than that turning into a situation where there's frustration and conflict, you know, it can just be an opportunity to try and explore something that's a little bit different. So I think that's a a handy tip, no matter where you are in the lifespan, uh, to think about expanding that definition of sex.
1: Absolutely. For everybody at every age, love making is all about gentle playful extended mutual whole body massage for young lovers that helps men calm down and last longer uh, it's part of the masters and johnson program for lasting longer and for middle-aged and older lovers that whole body massage is what aids in sexual function and pleasure people who have orgasms there have been surveys where they say you know what's the quality of your orgasm and as mutual whole body massage increases, so does the pleasure of orgasm. So, if you, you know, with all respect to the occasional quickie, quick sex is generally not the best sex people have. Slow sex is where it's at. And slow sex means extended m- massage.
0: We have lots more to discuss, including some. Additional tips for enhancing and improving your sex life, as well as answering some common sex questions, but we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Promescent has everything you need for amazing sex, including their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men increase their stamina in the bedroom. It has Target's own technology, which allows you to desensitize only the areas you want and customize it for your body. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews. It's also recommended by more than 2,000 medical professionals. Promescent offers a number of other sexual wellness products, including their Vitaflux supplements, female arousal gel, and line of personal lubricants that come in water-based, silicon, and organic varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet, plain white bubble mailers to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T.com. And we're back. My guest today is journalist Michael Castleman, author of the new book, Sizzling Sex for Life. Our next topic is tips for better sex at any age. And we've covered a few things earlier on, but something I want to talk a bit more about is sexual communication, because this is something else that can benefit people no matter where they are, because so many of us have difficulties communicating what it is that we want to our partners. So can you give us any practical tips, Michael, on how to start productive and healthy sexual conversations?
1: Yes. In the first part of my book, Sizzling Sex for Life, there's a section called The Ten Ingredients of Sizzling Sex. And one of them is coaching, mutual coaching. Now, I know the term in sex education circles is communication. And if I had a nickel for every time a sex educator said the key is communication, I'd be as rich as Bill Gates. Me too. Um, <laughs> but the fact is, sexual communication is really best presented, especially to men, using the concept of coaching. Coaching helps you get better in sports. Coaching helps you get better in bed, too. And I have a whole section, uh, a chapter in Sizzling Sex for Life about sexual coaching. And the problem with it is that when you say communication, people think like you need to make speeches and orations and have, you know, big extended discussions that's not true. You can have very effective sexual coaching with just using one word. The word is yes. If you like what's going on, you say yes. If you don't like what's going on, you remain silent. And over time, lovers are much more likely to give you what elicits a yes than what elicits silence. You know, I'm saying coaching can happen with just one word. And the other thing is that sexual initiators can get good coaching simply by saying a few words. And those words are, is this okay? Would you like something different? Is this okay? That's not hard to say. Is this okay? And it invites people to provide coaching. And so I always use the term coaching. And in fact, now there's a whole career path in sex coaching. Because uh, communication is vague and it really doesn't describe what's effective. So I, I always use the term coaching and I encourage people to use as few words as possible just to get the job done.
0: Yeah, and there are different forms of sexual communication or coaching uh, that you can employ that are they don't take a lot of work or effort and you know i think i think you did a good job of describing how just one word can be effective but that can also be accomplished through moaning and groaning when your partner does something that you find to be really pleasurable you know a lot of people are just kind of really silent the whole time that they're having sex and when you're not giving your partner any feedback at all they don't have anything to work with. They don't know what it is that you like or enjoy. And so it's important to think about sex through the lens of psychological reinforcement theory, where you want to provide your partner with some reward when they do something that feels really good or pleasurable. So whether that's saying yes or moaning or groaning or telling them that that feels really good, that can help to ensure that you're getting more of what you want during sex. Going forward. So you can think about communication through that verbal and nonverbal lens, but it doesn't have to be this big thing all the time when you're conveying what it is that you like to your partner.
1: Yeah. And I totally agree with you, Justin. And uh, just to add slightly to that is that when sex is over in afterglow, as you're there and you're in bed and you're just a, a little dreamy, that's the perfect time to say, hey, you know, when you did this, that was really great. Let's keep that on the, on, the, on the menu. And then when you did that, well, you know, I would actually like it a little different. But overall, it was really great. One of my favorite sex educators, Patty Britton, calls it the um, communication sandwich, where you start with a compliment, then you fill the sandwich with your complaint, and then you end with another compliment. And that's something that people can hear. Because what they hear is that you know two-thirds of the feedback they get is good, and there's one little suggestion in the middle. A lot of people are very nervous about making suggestions because they don't know how their partner's going to take it. But if you do this uh, three-part approach of a compliment, a suggestion, and another compliment, it's easier to say, and it's a lot easier to hear.
0: It's true, and I talk about this a lot when it comes to sharing your sexual fantasies and how it's really important to validate your partner when you're having those conversations and telling them about your wants and your desires because a lot of people feel threatened or insecure by their partner bringing up this this fantasy or this new thing that they might like to try. They might take it as a sign that my partner isn't into me anymore, they're not happy with the sex that we're having, and so finding a way to frame it to cut off those insecurities of the past is really important for having productive and healthy conversations about sex. So let's talk about some other tips for enhancing your sex life. You talk a lot in your book about the role of sexual enhancers and novelties, things like lubricants, sex toys, sexy underwear, and lots more. So why should people consider using some of these sexual enhancers and how can they make their sex lives even better?
1: Well, what a lot of people don't know is that novelty is a key element of happy lovemaking. A lot of people get into sexual ruts and they do the same thing time after time after time. And now, you know, if you love pizza, I love pizza, but do I want to have pizza, you know, for lunch and dinner seven days a week? No, you get, it gets boring. It gets, you know, you, you get, you get, uh, disgusted with it. Um, lovemaking is the same novelty releases dopamine in the brain and dopamine is the neurotransmitter of erotic excitement and so novelty is one of the key things i mean most people know that sex often feels better on vacation than it does at home why because a hotel is new and different the scenery is new and different it's new and so people should always look for ways to make sex fresh and new and that makes it more exciting. And for older people, that often means making love at a different time of day. Older people often run out of erotic energy in the late evening and find that they have much more fun if they make love in the late morning or the early afternoon. And as far as younger people are concerned, novelty is asking your partner for different types of touch and different kinds of massage you know, it's not easy to ask for, but it's easier than asking for uh, genital changes. So doing anything you can to increase novelty, and that's probably going to make your sex better.
0: And there's a lot to be said for that from the perspective of The research in this area, we see that the couples who are more sexually satisfied, and I shouldn't just say couples, you know, to be inclusive of people who are in consensually non-monogamous relationships, people in any type of relationship, the more that they're mixing it up and trying new things, the more satisfied they tend to be in their sex life and in their relationship because it helps to keep that passion and excitement alive. And to tie in what you were saying to something you mentioned earlier, you talked about how. A lot of seniors explore kink for the first time. And part of the reason for that is because it's adding that element of novelty and newness, which can help to amp up your arousal level. But it also can create this immersive sexual experience that just kind of draws you in and makes it more exciting from that standpoint. But there's one other benefit there that I thought was worth mentioning, which is that there's actually some research finding that Some people turn to kink or BDSM because it's a way of coping with chronic pain or illness. So engaging in kinky activities allows you to be in the moment and it can actually reduce the perception and sensation of pain. And so for older adults who might be struggling with chronic illnesses, kink and BDSM activities can actually be this adaptive way of dealing with painful health conditions that they might be experiencing. So that's something that a lot of people don't recognize, but I just thought was interesting and and worth mentioning.
1: Yes, yes. The research is very clear uh, that um, the concept is known as a counter irritant. The body can only pay attention to a certain number of pain messages at one time. And if you have, say, arthritis, which most people have by the time they are older adults, you have these chronic aches and pains. But if you add a little bit of erotic spanking to your lovemaking routine, the spanking essentially serves as a counter irritant that takes that distracts you from your joint pain and allows you to feel released from it. And that release helps you enjoy sex a lot more.
0: And something else that's happening at the same time is during sexual arousal there is activation of the brain's opioid system. And so that can be another factor that's involved in the reduced perception or or sensation of pain when people are engaging in, uh, say, kink or BDSM activities. Now, I want to turn the topic to LGBTQ sex for a moment. You have a section in your book on this, and a lot of our conversation earlier was focused more on male-female relationships. But LGBTQ sex is something that is neglected in most sex education. So what are some of the key things that people who are LGBTQ, what do they need to know about better sex?
1: Well, a lot. But uh, let me just start by saying that as Sizzling Sex for Life, I try to be as inclusive as possible. And I don't assume it's, it's, you know, 90% of people of Americans are exclusively heterosexual but I try to be very sensitive to the 10% who are not. And the myth is that, um, that LGBTQ sex is somehow very different from heterosex. In fact, that's a mistake. The research is very clear that sexual satisfaction among LGBTQ couples is very similar to the satisfaction range among straight people. And what LGBTQ folks do how they manage their relationships also very similar to straight people but what the non-heterosexual folks need to understand is that their history of being stigmatized just often wreaks havoc on their emotional health and their and their sexuality and the more that society can accept sexual and gender minorities as the equal of everyone else the happier we're all going to be. And so I I really think it's important for um, lesbian women and gay men and bisexuals and queer folks and gender non-conforming people to understand that, that they're fine and they can have wonderful lovemaking pretty much the way heterosexual people can with just a few little variations.
0: Yeah, and I think just a couple of things to add to that. Some of the specific sexual practices do vary across sexualities. And, you know, these things are not covered at all in people's sex education courses. But for more information on this, I do have a post on my page, and I'll include this in the, the show notes, about a link to the Safer Sex Guide for LGBTQ folks especially for younger adults who are just kind of exploring their sexuality, some of the key things that they need to know. Also, there was a previous episode of the podcast focused on anal sex. And, you know, that's an area that, again, is totally neglected in sex education, but is very common across different sexual orientations, but especially among men who have sex with men. And so if you want to find out more about the science there and how to have safer and more pleasurable uh, anal sex, you can check out that episode of the podcast.
1: Yes, you can. Also, I have a chapter in my book on on anal play. It's called uh, "Anal Sex Without Pain," because that's the main thing people complain about. And it's again independent of sexual orientation. It's similar for gay guys and heterosexual couples and lesbian couples. Everybody. And the other thing that's interesting is that the surveys show that lesbian women are generally considerably more orgasmic than uh, heterosexual women. And Why? Because when women make love with women, they both understand the importance of the clitoris, and they both give each other a lot of oral sex, which in heterosexual relationships, a lot of men don't give oral sex to women, and heterosexual women have lower rates of orgasm as a result.
0: Yeah, and when we talk about this idea of the orgasm gap with men having orgasms more frequently, more consistently than women, that's only true in heterosexual relationships, right? There is no real orgasm gap when you start comparing rates of orgasm between, say, lesbians and gay men. Now, something else to also mention here is that the definitions of sex also vary across people's sexual orientation and so whereas most heterosexuals define sex as penile vaginal intercourse most gay men define it as penetrative anal intercourse but lesbians actually have the most expansive view of what sex is and in one study that i saw lesbians counted more than 10 different activities as being sex whereas most gay men and most heterosexual persons only count one activity. So I think there's actually something that we can all learn from lesbians, which is, you know, taking that more expansive view of sex that we talked about a little bit earlier, because it allows for more opportunities for pleasure.
1: Yes. And I I love that study that you uh, just mentioned, how lesbians see more of lovemaking as sex. And that's because women tend to be more playful than men. Men view sex as a kind of, you know, forced march to, you know, intercourse. And sex educators are always saying that the best sex is playful. It's a, it's a, lovemaking is adult play. And lesbian couples seem to understand that intuitively better than a lot of heterosexual couples where the man is supposedly orchestrating the sex and the women are along for the ride and then they don't come. Uh, so, heterosexual couples have a lot to learn from lesbian
0: couples. It's true. And, you know, when you look at average length of sex for heterosexual couples it's about 15 minutes and that's you know inclusive of foreplay and and everything else but when you look at lesbians it's more like 45 minutes from some of the studies that i've seen so when women have sex with women they're spending a lot more time on the encounter now the research shows that lesbian couples do tend to have sex less frequently but when they do it they spend a lot more time on it and report very pleasurable and satisfying encounters. So, the nature, the quality of the sex seems to be different. There's that greater focus on quality over quantity and you know that's an issue that a lot of people get wrong about sex no matter where they are in the lifespan where they think that if i just had more sex i'd be happier but the truth of the matter is that if you're only having mediocre sex to begin with having more mediocre sex on top of that isn't necessarily going to make you any happier and it's really all about focusing on the quality of the sex and not obsessing so much over the quantity right well put So we're running a little short on time, but I wanted to take a few moments to tackle some common questions that you and I both get about sex. So one of the most common things I get asked by men is about penis size. Uh, So what can you tell us about average penis size? And, you know, we addressed the issue of, you know, does penis size matter uh, a little bit earlier, but let's just focus on that body concern that so many men have, which is what is the average penis size?
1: Well, the most important thing for men to learn about penis size is that the size of your penis, whether it's flaccid or erect, depends entirely on blood flow through the organ. The more blood, the bigger you look. And the more, but worry, stress, anxiety causes the arteries to constrict a little bit, and less blood, the more worried you are less blood goes into your penis. So the more you stress about your size, the smaller you're going to be. So the first thing men have to do is relax about their penis size. It's fine. And if you relax and if you make love uh, with a lot of whole body massage so that your whole body relaxes, you get more blood in your penis and it looks larger. I have a whole chapter in Sizzling Sex for Life called look your largest safely and inexpensively it is unbelievable how much crap is available on the internet that claims to be you know penis enlargement pills programs exercises uh, th- these people should go to prison as far as i can, as uh, far as i'm concerned the real key to um being as large as you can possibly be is to relax about your penis size it's fine and the surveys show there was a huge study showing that uh, 87% of women think their men are just fine. And actually, a few percent of women think their men are too, too large, that it's uncomfortable having intercourse with a guy who's super huge. And so uh, only about 10% of women think their guy is too small. And so gentlemen, you have a nine out of 10 chance of having a being with a woman who thinks you're fine.
0: Yeah. And it's true that I think so many men overthink penis size and are more concerned with it than they really should be. Um, and also in terms of that, you know, average question when you look across studies of penis size, there was a meta-analysis of more than 15,000 different penile measurements and found that the average was about five inches. And when you ask people what average is, they tend to say more like six or seven. And so the truth of the matter is that, you know, average penis size is smaller uh, than people think it is. And that when you look at the penises that appear in porn, that those are not representative of the penises that are out there. And you don't need to have a large penis, and an extraordinarily large penis, in order to uh, you know provide your partner with pleasure or to experience pleasure yourself.
1: Right. Uh, if, you want, if you want to get a good sense of the average penis size, I always tell men to look at the most famous sculpture in the world, the Michelangelo's David. You take a look at that sculpture and you see his penis is rather modest. He's not a hung porn star. He's, he's not, you know, um, he's, he's a regular guy. And when men relax about their penis size, it looks its largest. And, and for anyone who has, you know, specific concerns, I suggest you read the chapter on penis size in my book. It runs down all of the safe ways to look your largest.
0: So let me ask you, what is the most common question that you tend to get about sex? I know that you've answered 12,000 or so questions by this point, but you know what's the most common or what are some of the most common questions that keep coming up?
1: Well, the common questions that come up are um, all about masturbation. People are very nervous about that. And the most common question among couples is about desire difference. One wants it more than the other, and each of them is driving the other crazy. Then there are a lot of questions about porn. Guys saying, "Oh my God, I watch porn every day. Is there something wrong with me?" Or the woman says, "He's a porn addict." Uh, there's a lot of that. And then uh, for men, there's a lot of questions about premature ejaculation. The the masturbation questions, I think, are, are particularly important because self-sexing is the most common form of lovemaking in the world, and most people self-pleasure more than they have partner sex. And people are very nervous about self-pleasuring because of religious uh, strictures and thinking that it's wrong, it's evil. It's not, it's fine. And sex educators get bored telling people, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. But I really believe that every sex education conversation should mention Uh, self-sexing because it's really uppermost in many people's minds. So again, in in Sizzling Sex for Life, I have a whole chapter that is devoted to the lifelong joy of self-pleasuring and what it's all about.
0: Yeah. And I do get a lot of questions about masturbation too. Like, am I doing it too much? Is it normal to masturbate when you're in a relationship with someone? And A lot of the answers to these questions are the same in that they're providing reassurance that masturbation is normal and healthy. And that just because your partner masturbates while you're in a relationship with them, that doesn't mean that they're not attracted to you or that they're not happy with the sex they're having. In fact, we need to think about masturbation differently. For example, there's some research showing that the more sexually satisfied a woman is, the more likely she is to masturbate, right? And so masturbation can actually be a sign of a really satisfying sex life as opposed to the way that so many people interpret it, which is as a sign of dissatisfaction. So masturbation is is normal and healthy. And there's so much that we get wrong about it and uh, so much stigma that we need to unwind and undo uh, when it comes to that.
1: Yeah, and I don't think sex educators can talk about it enough. You know, the, the idea that, well, masturbation is okay for single people, but once you get in a relationship, shouldn't that person satisfy all your sexual needs? Absolutely not. Masturbation is a lifelong pleasure and, you know, why give up apple pie once you've tasted cherry? I mean, masturbation and partner sex are both, both involve the genitals, but they're very different experiences. And masturbation is the way we learn how we respond sexually. It's the way we learn to have orgasms. In my book, I, I, I basically advocate that people should self-sex more because they'll learn more about themselves.
0: Well, since you brought up masturbation and apple pie, now I can't like unsee that scene in American pie. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) thank you so much for this wonderful conversation, Michael. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and get a copy of your latest book?
1: Well, Sizzling Sex for Life is available on Amazon and that's sizzlingsexforlife.com. You can also get it there and wherever books are sold you can get Sizzling Sex for Life. And as far as I go, you can find me at greatsexguidance.com where I answer sex questions for free on the internet. And I'd be happy to answer yours.
0: And 12,000 and counting. So (laughs) thank you so much for your time and your valuable insights and all the work that you do trying to provide sex education to the world. I really appreciate having you here also thank you to my listeners to keep up with new episodes of the podcast you can visit my website sex and psychology at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform where i hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast you can also follow me on the social media for daily sex research updates i'm on twitter at justin Miller and instagram at justin j Miller. that's l-e-h miller Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, if you want a deep dive into the science of sexual fantasies. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.